bow with me in another word of prayer. Blessed Father, as we delve back into the letter to the Galatians, give us wisdom to discern your word. Help us to be the people of the book, to be those who love your word, who rejoice in, in it. And Father, we just pray for the fact that as we go into the evening, please keep distractions, tiredness, and other things at bay. Help me to, to preach succinctly and clearly. In your son's most blessed name. Amen. So tonight's sermon is called Righteous or Cursed. Righteous or Cursed. And we're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Now, turning back to the letter to Galatians, we encountered the progression of Paul's argument. Paul had already, in the previous verses, helped them come to an understanding that they had come to salvation by faith alone, before any works were performed. He clarified to them, largely Gentile churches, that to be a true child of Abraham was not to implement works. It wasn't to go ahead and do obedience, such as the acts of circumcision, but rather to be in the mold of Abraham is to have faith. That faith was the instrument for justification, being counted right with God. Faith, faith, faith. That's what Paul is getting at. Not through or by works. You cannot, Paul's emphasizing, you cannot be justified by works. You cannot start by the Spirit and end by the flesh. It's faith or the way. And to Paul, this cannot be overemphasized. This cannot be overstated. The word faith itself in this in chapter 3 is used 15 times. This is how Paul wants to put faith in the forefront. Nine times alone it's used between verses 1 to verses 14. And now Paul in verses 10 to 14, after emphasizing that there must be a reliance upon faith, now continues to state why one cannot rely upon works. Why one cannot rely upon the law to be made right with God. That ultimately anyone who attempts to do this, anyone who attempts to do so, as we read in verse 10, and as I always exhort you to do, please do keep your Bibles open. But just as we read in verse 10, anyone who attempts to be justified by works is under a curse. Now, we may wonder, we may think that this is something that, of course, Protestants are well-grounded in. We know as Protestants that we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone. After all, from the Reformation, this was given immense clarity. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by a works-based system like Roman Catholicism. No, we're saved by faith and faith alone. We're saved through faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. After all, Ephesians 2 tells us that this is by grace alone and not by works, lest no one shall boast. 
The Reformation was a repudiation of any forms of work-based understanding for Christians. So, of course, we know all this. So why do we need to reiterate this? Why do we need to go over this again? Well, let me read to you some statistics from some fairly recent polls and surveys conducted in the United States. The only reason I'm picking on the United States is not because of Todd, but because we don't actually do that many surveys or uh, polls on these type of matters here in Australia, so there's not much I can actually pull from. But according to a 2020 poll among Americans by the Arizona Christian University, 48% of participants believes believe that a person who's good enough or does enough good works can earn eternal salvation. Now, 52 of those 48 embraced the, uh, embraced the idea. They describe, describe themselves as evangelicals, as Christians. That should be an alarming statistic. Or how about this? Uh, how about this poll, which was conducted by Ligonier? Now, Ligonier, for those who may not be aware, was a ministry which was founded by R.C. Sproul. But Ligonier, when they did a survey as to whether people believe that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature, 66% of Americans believe exactly that. Everyone sins. But generally, everyone's good in nature. Only 39% of those with evangelical beliefs disagreed with that. 39% of evangelicals. Or only 25% agreed that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Now, thankfully, 55% of those who had self-identified evangelical beliefs, they agreed with that. 55%, but that still means 45%. Self-professed evangelicals did not. Now, this really should be alarming. This should definitely testify to the state of the church and the confusion that the church finds itself in and why, in many respects, the churches in Galatia are not alone in misunderstanding how Christians are saved and about understanding the dilemma that humanity finds itself in. And this dilemma is exactly that which Paul wants to illuminate to his readers in these verses in front of us this evening. Now, for those who are wishing or wanting a a sermon outline, I've only got three points. In some ways, this is a classic three-point sermon. But the first point is the dilemma, the dilemma. The second point is the solution. And the last point is our answer, our answer. The dilemma, the solution, our answer. Now, Paul opens up in verse 10 and states, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed now Paul here is clear that if one attempts to rely upon their actions upon the law for their salvation of box ticking their merit 
then they are simply under a curse. Citing Deuteronomy 27.26, everyone who does not do everything written in a book of the law is cursed. Paul's grounding his assertion here in Scripture that everyone who relies on their own hands upon trying to look upon the law as being a method of salvation, a method to salvation, will not only be disappointed, but they will be under a curse. Now, what does Paul mean on this account? Well, effectively that, if one does not uphold everything in the law completely and always, then they are cursed. Curse here being and meaning, being under the wrath and condemnation of God. If one violates even the smallest amount of the law, the smallest tittle, then they will be rightly condemned. It's just as James states elsewhere in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. The smallest violation means the violation of the entire law. So if one was to even attempt to rely on the works of the law to begin with, If one is to simply rely on the law to begin with, then they are simply under the ongoing wrath of God because they're relying upon conditions which they cannot honestly meet. This is why Paul continues in verse 11. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. It is evident, it is clear, Paul is saying, that there is no one who can perfectly uphold the law. As Paul states in Romans 3.12, and Romans 3 is a classic for anybody who wants to, again, point to the inability of man. But Romans 3.12 points, all have turned away, all like have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Both, Paul states in Romans 3, Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Again, Paul's putting it clear. It is clear. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Now, putting this contextually, and as touched upon the last time we were in Galatians 3, we need to remember that there were many at this time who thought that full obedience of the law was possible. There were those who felt that it was absolutely possible. Of course, if you look in the Mishnah, and we uh, spoke on also on the Maccabees last time, they argued within the text that Abraham was fully obedient. And that was why he was considered righteous, They believed at this time that many believed that their outward performance was sufficient, even if their hearts were far away from God. This is why Jesus, of course, rebukes them in the Sermon on the Mount. But many, at this point in time, many of the people in the first century 
within Judaism thought that the works of their hands were sufficient to merit eternal life of God. And in this way, we come across a dilemma that affects all humanity. Because the law, that is an attempt to work our way to God, which is what Paul is really getting at here. Our attempt to work our way to God, again, he's talking to a largely Gentile audience. But that any attempts to work our way to God cannot justify it. Again, when Paul's talking about the works of the law, he's talking about the mindset. He's talking about a life that is trying to be one of obedience. The works of the law, that which tries to live a way of life towards God and with God. But again, based on our own ability, based on our own work, based on our own attempts, they cannot at all justify. They cannot make us right with God. It cannot be a means of salvation. And consequently, to rely on the works of your hands, um, somehow that would be good enough for God, is foolishness. Now, people will think that they're okay. But actually, what Paul is saying, they are under our curse. They are under the full condemnation of God. And the sad thing is they're not okay. They don't understand that. They don't understand that despite the fact that they think they are justifying themselves by their own works, by the law, by their own ability to make themselves right with God, that they are under God's condemnation. They don't see that. They don't understand that. They're effectively daydreaming whilst they are approaching a cliff face, not recognising the the peril that they're in. This dilemma is because people don't see themselves as bad as they are. And consequently, because of that, they see their works as being better than they are. They don't understand how bad they truly are. And consequently, they don't see their actions for what they are. And as such, because of this misconception, because of this self-deception, they cling to their works. They cling to their, the works of their hands. But look how good I am. Look at how many good things I do. And of course, if we look at the human condition and we look at the religious systems out there and so many which are based on work, so many which are based on merit, so many which are based on what I do to get my way into a better place, whether it is to some form of heaven or to a better life in in a form of uh, reincarnation, a better station in life based on the merit that I do here and now. But even in Christianity... There's a tendency, there's a tendency to be self-reliant, to base things upon our actions, to base things upon our works. 
And this is why one of the most confronting chapters of Scripture, and it's one that we've read many a time from this pulpit, but Matthew 7, 22, you notice that on that day many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? They relied, when confronted by Christ, did they go, no, I plead upon you. No, they pleaded upon their own works and what they did themselves. Upon what they did, instead upon what Christ did. Didn't I do good works? Shouldn't that suffice? But there's also a problem. There's also the problem when we only go to God when we ourselves feel like we're no longer in control. No longer able to rely upon oneself in a situation. With a flawed thought that God will only help us if we attempt to help ourselves first. Now, when we think, when we come to that mentality, when we start thinking, well, I need to do this first, and if I can't do it first, then I'll run to dependency upon God. In many respects, this is an understanding, this is a flawed understanding in thinking that our works will suffice in this way also. You know, it reminds me, growing up as a, uh, a young uh, a young kid in a non-Christian home, there was one book that I had that I used to read from cover to cover growing up. And it's one which was an illustrated version of Aesop's Fables, right? which is a, a Greek, ancient Greek compilation of proverbs, right? with stories and a proverb uh, which goes with that. And there was one particular fable which was Hercules and a wagoner. Hercules and a wagoner. Whereby a farmer is driving a wagon and he gets stuck in mud after heavy rain. The farmer looks at it and he goes, it's not, oh, this is going to be too hard to pull out. I'm not going to even try. And he starts cursing and calling upon Hercules. If only Hercules was here to help me, then he could easily push this wagon outside of the mud. And he calls upon Hercules to come and aid him. And lo and behold, Hercules is there. Hercules looks at the situation, looks at a farmer not trying to do anything to take the wagon out of the mud. And then simply tells him, Hercules will not help unless you make some effort to help yourself. The farmer does so. He puts his shoulder to the wheel. The wagon gets unclogged and the problem is solved. He's happy. And the story ends with a proverb. And it might be a proverb that you've heard before. Self-help is the best help. Heaven or God, depends on the version of the Aesop fables you have, but heaven or God helps those who help themselves. You know, when I was a young Christian, or not even, but when I first was Christian attending a church, I used to think that myself. And I have, I am certain that such a belief that God helps those who help themselves permeates within Christian circles. That we must somehow be self-reliant first or that we must be self-reliant throughout our Christian life. 
Before we can cry out to God, before we can run to God, we have to try in our own strength first to fix something. But to do this, to do this, to think this, is to misconstrue and misunderstand God. Because the fact is, we in our own sinful dispositions cannot bring about salvation. We cannot bring around about the solution to the most pressing, to our most pressing need. The fact is, we are unable to help ourselves. And that's exactly why we cannot be reliant upon ourselves. It's why God himself actioned the plan of redemption. Because we are a desperate people in need of rescuing. God is a God for the hopeless. He is a God for the helpless. He is a God who loved us prior to us ever being able to love him. God doesn't help those who help themselves. No, he is a God that helps those who cannot help themselves. And this is exactly why we accord not to salvation by works, but to salvation by faith. By trusting and relying upon Christ and not ourselves. Now, in an immediate response to that, our first questions must be to ask, who are we relying upon in our own lives? Whose works? Are we relying on our own or Christ? Do we have this mentality that God only helps those who help themselves? If we understand that the law cannot bring us to salvation, but it is meant to point us to our inability, to our hopelessness, then it should have us run to Christ in dependency. This is why Paul is saying it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. And this is why he then goes on to cite Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. Now, aside from grounding his argument in scripture, Paul's use of Habakkuk is insightful. For you see, Habakkuk complained, the prophet complained, that Israel at that time, specifically Judah, was no longer as it ought to be. It was not a holy nation. It was not a holy nation unto God. It was a depraved nation who only desired to serve themselves. They once upon a time vowed obedience to the law. The nation of Israel had, but had since long abandoned their promise. But God's answer was not that Israel should recommit itself to obedience to the law, to avoid the same fate that that happened to their northern neighbors, to avoid a Babylonian invasion, just recommit yourself to obedience to the law. No, God responded that the faithful remnant had to live by faith. Faith in the covenant promises of God. And Paul is clear here 
Those who are saved are not saved through obedience, but through faith. It is by faith alone, not obedience to the law, that brings righteousness, that will bring eternal life. The answer to the dilemma that faces humanity lays not with any attempts of trying harder, with being better, with depending upon ourselves first, but, but externally by depending upon God. Fully, wholly, and completely. For as Paul continues in verse 12, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Those who bind themselves so much to the idea of working towards their salvation, well, guess what? They're bound to uphold it entirely. If you think you can merit your way to salvation, if you think you can make a right way with God, if you think you can make him satisfied based on your conduct and ability, then you will need to uphold each and everything God calls you to uphold. You can't pick and choose only the simple things you think are easy. It's all or nothing. And the reality is, they can't. Anybody who commits themselves to such a way in thinking that they can, through the works of their hands, make any progress towards God are like nothing more than being on a spiritual treadmill, thinking they're progressing but really staying still. The reality is they advance nowhere at all. They continue, despite thinking otherwise, they continue to be under the condemnation of God. The law, Paul states, is not of faith. There is either law and reliance upon our own works, which is foolishness, or there is faith. You cannot try to follow both paths. You cannot do both law and faith because the law is not based on faith. It's different. It's separate. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, we cannot be saved partially by faith and partly by works. The roads are distinct. We must keep the whole law if we would be saved by it. And the fact is, anyone who attempts to rely upon works do not understand that they are already lawbreakers. They're relying upon something that they've already violated. This is what Paul is hoping the Galatians understand. That the two, faith and law, are completely antithetical to each other. That by the Judaizers who had come in and started to convince the Galatians that they now needed to add obedience to the law, they now needed to add circumcision, 
that the Judaizers themselves, they were not escaping God's curse, but actually they were incurring it. And unwittingly, they were bringing the Galatians under that very same curse, that curse of condemnation and wrath. Yet as Paul continues in verses 13 to 14, he gives the solution and the answer to the dilemma, wherein he states in verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Whilst we could be here and attempt to continue to be condemned by the law by attempting to be justified by it, because any attempts to justify just incurs more condemnation, there is one, as many of us are aware here this evening, there is one who has redeemed us from this curse from the condemnation of God. How? Because he became a curse for us. As in Christ took upon himself the condemnation and the wrath of God. Now what Paul states here, because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Whilst all of us here this evening who violate and transgress the law with our sinful ways, whilst we are lawbreakers. It is Christ himself who took on the punishment for being a lawbreaker. Even through, as we know, Christ upheld the law perfectly. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. But not only did Christ receive the punishment, but such a significant punishment that serves as a warning to others. For you see, a standard lawbreaker, a violator of God's covenant during Old Testament times, was put to death, perhaps by stoning. But a particular lawbreaker would also be hung upon a tree for no longer than the rest of the day. The action was to show God's curse on the lawbreaker, on the covenant breaker. Again, Christ took the punishment for sin, for the violations of the law that we deserved. And his death signifies, his death testifies to the seriousness of not being able to uphold the law. It stands as a reminder that attempting to uphold the law for salvation leads to only death. But for those who live in faith in Christ, they will receive eternal life. Why? Because he resolved the dilemma we're in. That whilst our works, our own ability, cannot merit our salvation, his works, his ability, does.
that working our own way to heaven based on our own conditions, based on our own attempts, puts us under the condemnation of God as we will be forced to live by the law completely and we will fail. But he, he has already worked the way to heaven for all those who believe in him. He had taken upon himself the condemnation of God. He has lived under the law completely and he has seceded. So the question is, of course, for us here this evening is, with two horses galloping in two different directions, one of law and trying to be justified by law which leads to condemnation, wrath and death, or one which is in Christ and leads to faith, and one which is faith which is in Christ and leads to eternal life. With two horses leading in two different, vastly different directions, which horse will we be on and ride on? The one of faith leading to eternal life or the one of works resting on our own ability, resting on our own efforts, our own hands, which leads and continues to lead to eternal condemnation. Now this is where we must give an answer, brothers and sisters. Have we wrestled as to where we are with God? Have we thought through as to whether it is based, the way that we live is based upon our attempts to be with God based on our works, our merit. That's how we live. We may say otherwise, but in actuality, in the way that we live, practically speaking, it's based on our own hands, our own merit. Or is it upon Christ who has paved the way? who is already reunited with God based on his successful works, based on his successful merit, and whose righteousness all believers, that is, of course, those who believe in faith alone, uh, who uh, believe, are credited with. As Martin Luther reminds us, we are ignorant of God and hostile to him. We are dead in sins and accursed. Our merit is of no value whatsoever. The only way we can escape the curse of sin is to believe that Christ had taken it on himself and disposed of it for us by dying. For those of us here this evening who state that we rely upon faith alone, in Christ alone, as the instrument for our justification. I want us just to contemplate, to think through, as to whether it is indeed Christ and his finished works that we are reliant upon, truly. That there is nothing that we ourselves are reliant upon which emanates from ourselves, from our own worth, from our own ability that we're basing our salvation upon. That we are not those who rely upon ourselves first and then rely upon God, thinking that God somehow helps those who help themselves first. No, we ought to be those who always run to God. 
first and foremost. Those who run the Christ completely dependent upon him. Remembering that the gospel itself promises life to them who do nothing for salvation, but only believe in Christ. That it promises, the gospel promises salvation for all that believe, not due to our faith or work, but only because of the merit of Christ. Brothers and sisters, may we be those who hold the faith alone, not only in our heads, but also in the outworking in our lives. For those, though, who are still dependent upon themselves, who somehow think that you're good enough to be with God, who think that somehow they can merit their right standing, beware of Paul's words here. All who are dependent upon works are under a curse, are under God's condemnation and his wrath. If somehow you've deceived yourself into thinking that you're, it's okay, you'll get to heaven based on your own terms, based on your own ability, you're going to be in for a rude shock. For it is, as Charles Spurgeon puts it, the law roars as a lion upon us in this sentence, in this verse. If there is any, if there is any in our, any one of us a solitary violation of the command of God, we are cursed by Him. If we have at any time throughout life, in any measure or degree, in deed, word, or thought, by omission or commission, diverged from absolute perfection, then we are cursed. Such is a statement of God by himself, by the mouth of his servant Moses in Deuteronomy 27.26. There is no exception. All sins are included in it, and we are all of us included. Our only hope, Charles Spurgeon puts elsewhere, is in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ received by faith. So the question is, do you see your dilemma? But do you also see the divine solution that God has made? How sweet it is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, but only for those who truly believe in him, who run to him in complete dependence Christ took the condemnation for us as we see here in the last verse so that the blessing of Abraham of eternal life with God would come to all by Christ Jesus. But the question is, will you take it up? Will we believe in Christ and his finished works? Relegating our own strength 
our own ability, our own intellect, our own talent and work as adding nothing, absolutely nothing in our salvation. What will be your answer? Will you be righteous through Christ or cursed through your own ability? I pray it will be the former. Let's pray. Blessed Father, we thank you for the fact that whilst we were cursed, whilst we were lawbreakers, condemned justly under your wrath, that not only did you love us, not only did you give all believers as a love offering and a love gift to Christ, but Father, you have brought us out of this dilemma by Christ becoming a curse for us, by taking the condemnation, your condemnation, your punishment that we deserved so that through Christ we may now live. Help us, Father, to be those who depend upon you fully, wholly, completely, not upon our own works, not in somehow thinking that we need to do things first in order to pave the way, but completely dependent upon God, completely dependent upon Christ, being the first that we run to, not trying to resolve matters in our own hands by our own strength, but resting in the finished work, the complete work of Christ. Father, help us to, again, to look at our own selves, to probe the inner chambers of our own hearts and to see who are we reliant upon and help help us run the Christ so that we may be those who are not cursed but have eternal life in him. In his son's most blessed name. Amen.